wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome. If you're on Facebook and Instagram, please connect with Bleeding Daylight. Links and other episodes are at bleedingdaylight.net. Please share Bleeding Daylight with others. Does prayer really work? Does God still heal today? My guest today will describe the extraordinary experience that compelled him to believe. Reverend Dr. David Chotka is an author, a prayer mobiliser, and has been an ordained pastor for more than 30 years. He's the founder and director of Spirit Equip Ministries. David co-authored the book Healing Prayer, God's Idea for Restoring Body, Mind and Spirit. I'm very pleased to say that he's my guest today. David, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for allowing me to be in your program. It's a delight. I'm wondering if you can still remember those early steps in faith. Can you take me back to those early days of belief and maybe some of those early questions for you around the spiritual life? I met the Lord when I was 16. I have funny little memories where I wonder if it was sooner, but nothing by way of discipleship. But I do remember a Mennonite kid who came to school one day and he forgot to do his Bible study in the morning or missed it or something. So he brought his black leather bound King James Bible to our high school. And a bunch of people around him asked him, was he reading that because he had to understand Shakespeare or something? And he said, oh, no, no, I actually believe it. I didn't get my devotions in this morning. And so they said, well, what do you believe? And he told them, and some of them got saved. (laughs) I belonged to the drama guild in those days. And so did my older brother. And there were about 60 students in the drama guild. We do plays and musicals and those kinds of things. I always loved the opportunity to try and play a part and so on. But 30 of the 60 people in the drama guild got saved. 30 of the 60. Most of them didn't have to make major changes because it was a moral era in those days. In this case, though, there were a couple of people who'd made major shifts, and I got to watch them because I already had known them before, and they were talking about their faith in Christ. And and so here's the moment where it came to a head. My parents ran a restaurant, and we had five apartments. There was always someone who was leaving something behind in the apartment. And as it turned out, we'd a little lost and found. We'd keep it for 30 days. Then we'd either give it away to some goodwill thing or the Salvation Army or something. Or if it was helpful, we'd keep it. We didn't own a Bible. Somehow or other, I tripped over this old, abandoned, hard-covered cloth King James Bible. I was trying to figure out whether or not it was true. And after many, many, many heart-searching questions, as an agnostic trying to figure it out, I sat down in my bedroom and I opened up to the table of contents. Because I was a student of Shakespeare, Shakespearean language, the language of the era wasn't hard for me. And I began to look at the table of contents. That's what I called it. It was an order of chapters. And I was, to my great surprise, I found that there was a book in there called Luke. And there was a book in there called Timothy. Now, I had a friend named Luke and my brother's name is Timothy. (laughs) So (laughs) I thought, well, I, I I should start to read this. So for some reason, I picked Luke. I didn't even know what a gospel was. But I started to read this, and I was astonished by the healing stories of Jesus. Just absolutely astonished by that. Nobody had ever told me that Jesus was a healer, and I'd never met anybody healed by faith in the Lord. Oh, there were crazies on television slapping people on the forehead and that kind of thing, screaming heal. 
et cetera, et cetera. But I had never seen that kind of response in any person. And I was amazed by this. And here's the kicker. While I was reading about people being made well in the presence of Jesus, I started to get a 24-hour flu bug. (laughs) This was really bizarre. And so I remember the moment I had to go and tell my parents that I wasn't feeling well because I could not clean the restaurant as the usual custom was. I got into bed. I sat down in the bed and I was just confused because I was reading a holy book for the first time in my life. And in the middle of doing that, I was getting ill. Rodney, I prayed my very first ever prayer. I'd never prayed a prayer before this that I'm aware of. I suspect there might have been something earlier, but this is the one I was consciously aware of. I said, God, I don't understand this. I am reading this holy book about Jesus making people well, and I am getting ill. This is a mystery to me. Those are the the words I used. And as I did that, I decided to lie down on the bed and, you know, try and beat the sweat and the fever, that kind of thing. And I closed my eyes and I was shaking a little bit. And then in front of my eyes, I saw a picture when my eyes were closed of the words Timothy 3.16. Now, it was about three inches tall, and it was about a foot long, maybe a foot and a half long, something like this, but it filled the vision in my eyes, and then that picture got bigger and bigger and bigger until it filled the whole field of vision. I opened my eyes. Of course, the picture was gone, and I closed my eyes, and I could see Timothy 3.16, clear as clear could be, right in front of my, the eye of my imagination, I guess you'd call that. Oh, you know what? There's a book in that Bible called Timothy. He's named after my brother. <laughs> So I reached over and I read 1 Timothy 3.16, and it said these words, and pay attention to this. Without controversy, great is the mystery. And I stopped. I had just said, God, this is a mystery. And there it was in front of me. God himself giving me a picture in my brain. I read these words, great is the mystery. And it was on great is the mystery of godliness, God who was manifested in the flesh, et cetera, et cetera. I beat the bug, and after a couple of days, I wound up going back to school, and I talked to my Christian friends who are now believers, and they basically said, oh, you should read 2 Timothy 3.16. Well, I was so caught up in amazement was the first that I didn't realize that I should read 2, of course, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is all about the value of Scripture. At that point, I was not a Christian. I was a seeker. That was my first question of God. It was my first prayer of God. And my f- the first response was to have him talk right back to me, non-verbally, by putting this thought in my head about a, bo- a verse of the Bible. That's where I learned this principle of word and spirit being joined together. I had an experience of spirit, and it pointed me to word, which in, in the two of them in turn pointed me to Christ himself. So word and spirit are always intertwined, and they have been since the beginnings of that. You know, it was around this healing thing that I was drawn to the gospel. Then I learned about prayer for healing in a remarkable way. I know that you're very much involved in prayer and prayer for healing, and we often think that these people that maybe have a gift in prayer or that are involved in prayer, they know something we don't. So I'm very interested in that, and I'm very interested in your early experiences of prayer. Did it just come naturally to you? Let me tell you the first time this happened. I started training. Now, you have a branch of of the church in your country called the Uniting Church. In those days, I was in that tradition, and it was moving toward uh, an anti-supernatural view of Scripture. There was an anti-supernatural bias in most of the faculty, but I was training for the ministry. I was in my early 20s. I had never met anybody who was miraculously healed by the prayer of faith. 
I didn't know how to do this. Nobody had trained me. It wasn't part of the culture. It wasn't part of the ethos. It wasn't part of the conversation. And if anybody was ill in the church, of course, there was always pastoral care. There was always somebody showing up to, to give care to the family and so on. But there was never this thing, let's pray for healing. That wasn't part of the, of the, uh, the thing in the air. So anyway, I go to this seminary and I'm new to the school and I am a strong believer in the power of Jesus to intervene in human history. I believe in prayer. I believe in the miracles. I believe the scripture is final. Some of the faculty in that school did not. There were some who did and some who did not. And I'd go into a class and, some, and one of the profs would say, oh, we know that that, that uh, miracle really didn't happen. And I would say something to, to the effect like this. Oh, yes, Moses split the sea. Jesus walked on water. What are you talking about? And there was a guy in the class who could have been a stand-up comic. The man was hilarious. If he looked at somebody sideways, the whole room would burst into laughter. And if he made a comment, it was always very insightful, very funny. And the room would explode in so much laughter that we'd laugh so hard it would hurt. You know, this it was just, he was really funny. Well, the trouble was I would defend the miracles of Jesus or, you know, uh, the necessity of the atonement or the value of the cross or whatever the issue of the day happened to be. And he would lob a joke into the middle of the room and we'd explode with laughter. And it was always poking fun at whatever the person had said. And this happened when I was defending the scripture. And we laughed so hard it hurt, but in fact, it did hurt. Now, if it happens once, that's one thing. But if this goes on for a very long season, and it happened five or six or seven times because we were in three or four classes together, you say to yourself, well, I'm not going to be friends with that boy. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And I was cautious. But regardless, I just couldn't imagine being in a place where people who are studying to teach about Jesus denied the miracles. One day I was going to my Greek class and there's a very young lady who is very, very warm and, and thoughtful and Christ-centered. And she was a do unto others as you would have them do unto you kind of girl. And I said, how are you doing, Susie? And she said, I'm, I'm fine. And how are you? And I said, I'm fine. I said, listen, I'm going to my Greek class. And she said, well, I got something to talk to you about. I said, what is it? She said, you know, the comedian in our class, I said, oh, I know him very well. <laughs> She said, he's in the hospital over there. Now, this is the university campus and the university hospital. Only about six blocks walk down the road. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, he has phlebitis. And I said, what's that? She said, well, it's a vein in his arm. It's got a clot in it. If the clot or embolism, I think is the proper medical term, if, if the embolism breaks free and travels through the bloodstream, it'll hit your lung or it'll hit your brain. And 95 times out of 100, you'll die. Very serious. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, is he getting good care? And she said, yes, he is. He's in that hospital just down over there. She said, he asked me to ask you something. I said, what's that? He wants you to come and pray for him. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> he asked me to ask you to come and pray for him. And I thought to myself, I'm not going. So I looked at her in the eye and I said, Susie, I am not going to go. And she said, why not? I said, you know this, he, he's been cruel. He has consistently made fun of what it is that I believe. He doesn't believe in the miracles of Jesus. In fact, just a few days ago, he said that Jesus did not heal. I was in the room, you watched it. And she said, yes, that's correct. I said, well, he's made a mockery of me in front of our peers. And I think he wants to make fun of me. And she said, you know, you're right. I'll go talk to him. I said, well, you're welcome to talk to him, but I'm not going in a way I went to my Greek class. Anyway, the next day in the coffee lounge, I see the same girl and she says to me, David, I, I went to see our friend. He's terribly sorry for what he said and he'd like you to come and pray for him. And I, I said, I'm not going. 
She said, well, he wants you to come. I said, I'm not going. A third time, I'm in the same plaza going to the Greek class. Greek class is three times a week. She runs into me as I'm going to the Greek class. This kind, sweet, gentle girl that I call Susie. She stomped her foot on the pavement. She got fire in her eyes and she inserted my middle initial. She knew it. She said, David R. Chotka, are you or are you not going around this college telling everybody the Bible is the word of God? I said, well, yes, I am. And, <laughs> and then she said, well, what about this scripture? Uh, I was sick and you visited me. And suddenly this fell blow landed in the, in the middle of my being. And I thought to myself, oh, no. Oh, no, I am going to have to go out of sheer obedience to the scripture. But I was still afraid because I'd never done it before. I received no training. And I didn't even know if that was for our, our present age. So I said to her, it says sick and visited. It doesn't say sick and pray. And she said, well, whether it's sick or pray or sick and visited, he wants you to go. So go. So I finished my class and then I did the sick block walk. I walked into the building. I saw him in the room. He was hooked up to wires and monitors. His face was very pale. It was obviously clear that he was in distress and very worried. I go in the room and I start to talk to him about the weather. Because <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Then I asked him about his course load and how he was doing with keeping up and so on. And then I'm standing by the door, looking him in the eye. And I said, I was ready to go. And I said, well, I, I've had my visit now. I'll be on my way. And he said, wait aren't you going to pray? And I stopped and I looked at him. And I said, now, just a minute. I just have to make something clear with you. Have you not, every single time I have spoken about something like a prayer for healing, you have consistently and regularly mocked me to our peers. You made me a laughingstock. Why do you want me to pray for you? He burst into tears. The man's 27 years old. It's obviously he's, he's launched in life. He's self-assured. He's crying in that bed. Great buckets of tears. And as he's weeping, he says, I'm so, so sorry I did that to you. But I have phlebitis and I could die. I don't know anybody else who believes that every word of the Bible is true. Won't you please pray for your Jesus to heal me? Roddy, when, when you're in the middle of that, you say to yourself, oh, this is not somebody who's, who's pretending. This, this is somebody who really means his repentance. And then I, I really wanted to pray for him, but I, I still had not a clue what to do. <laughs> but I remembered in the Bible, Jesus had placed his hands on those who were ill, or they would touch him. It was this human touch thing. I thought I should touch him. So I went around to, to his bedside. I said, where is the phlebitis? He said, left arm just above the elbow. I asked if I could place my hand on him. And he said, yes, put one hand there. I put the other hand on his head. And to this day, I don't remember what I prayed. I do remember it was something like, oh, God, please heal this man. But I, I'm sure it was a fumbling disaster of a prayer. <laughs> it was because I was so terrified because I didn't know what to do. And I was terrified because I just had no words and I, I thought he was going to mock me. This was the defining moment that began my search around this whole notion of prayer for healing. As I was standing over him and beside him doing this prayer, suddenly it was as if the atmosphere was charged with compassion. All of the air around this man was just filled with this compassionate sense of God being present to both of us through manifest presence. Now, I had no language to describe it in those days. 
it means that there was this palpable sense of almost like a cloudy, fiery sense filling the room. And it was like we were inhaling compassion and he felt it and I felt it. And I breathed it in and my whole being filled with the fire of the spirit. And I had never felt this before. This was the very first time I ever felt that kind of power. It was focus, compassion, power, energy, faith, conviction. And I was utterly and totally aware of only two realities. One was that fiery presence and the other was this man who needed his arm healed. And then I had what I, what I now know was a gift of faith. I suddenly believed beyond all believing that if I prayed, he would be well. I prayed and then I remember the first words he said coming out of his mouth. What is that fiery heat filling up my being? It's flowing through your arm. I said, that is the presence of Jesus' spirit. He's making you well. And then I ran out of the room. <laughs> Two things had happened to me. Number one, I had never felt anything like that before. And number two, I still thought he might be making fun of me. I, I just didn't know. So the next day in the coffee lounge, four o'clock in the afternoon, there he is. I looked at him. I was astonished. He was on his feet and back in the school. I said, you're here. He said, yes, I am. It was an old 19th century stone building. And it was made of beautiful bricks and stone. It had those abutments going into the hallways. It was very much an old European design. And the man took me by the arm, shoved me into the corner of one of those abutments, looked in all directions. And then he said, that prayer changed my life. And I said, thank you. And I ran away. But what he didn't know was that prayer changed my life. Shortly after that, I was in a class with him. I said something about the scripture being true or about, you know, the, those events being historical or whatever. And he started to tell a joke to the class only this time. He made fun of those who did not believe in the power of the Lord. And this went on for months. When I was going on our first summer field, and in those days, the denomination required us to come under the tutelage of a seasoned pastor for four months in, our, in what was our summer season. So he passed his phone bumper to me. He gave it to me. He looked at me and he said, if you're in trouble, you call. And I thought, okay. And away I went to my summer field, had a beautiful, beautiful time. And I came back to the, during the fall time to go to school. And he saw me, raced over and said, you didn't call. <laughs> I said, I had a marvelous summer. He said, if you're in trouble, you call. He continued his defense of me in classes. So there was a little party two months in. All the students were gathered. His wife was there. And this lady that I call Susie in the book was there. And I was there. We were chatting. The two girls started to give him the elbow and they said, you got to tell Chotka what happened. You have to tell Chotka what happened. He said, I don't want to tell Chotka what happened. <laughs> when I left, the nurse walked into the room. He said to the nurse, I can go home now. Jesus has healed me. My friend from the Bible college has come and prayed for me. And the nurse looked at him and said, we don't do that around here. we got to have scientific evidence that you're well. He said, well, run the tests. And she had just come to get him anyway, because it was time for them. They ran the tests. Rodney, every trace of phlebitis was gone from his body, every trace of it. He was quite well. He was released that night. His wife came to get him. She drove him home. And of course, that night, they're thankful. They're amazed. And they decided they should thank the Lord in prayer. And he wasn't used to praying either. And so they said to the Lord, thank you, God, that you have made us well. This is amazing. This is astonishing. We didn't even know this happened anymore. That night, after he fell asleep lying beside his wife, he had a dream. And in the dream, 
he heard the voice of God tell him, My servant David defends the integrity of my scripture. When he speaks, defend him. And he did. He looked at the two girls. He looked at me. And he said, the only time I ever got a phone call from God, it was for you. And he pointed his finger at me with a comedian kind of a thing. (laughs) But so began the journey of beginning to understand how prayer for healing happens in the scripture, how it works for us. And so those two events, this vision of seeing the scripture in front of me leading to the word and spirit principle, and this event where this man got healed taught me many things. But it started me with to get my nose in the Bible to understand what it is that happens in this thing called prayer for healing. Now, if I can lead you to the scripture, I'll tell you where I, where I found something like this. Absolutely. Would love to hear the scripture that really underpins what you're talking about. Luke's gospel. Now, you know, if anybody's read the Bible, you know that Luke chapter 1 starts with Luke's description of how he wrote the gospel. He basically says, oh, by the way, I'm not an eyewitness, but I talked to all kinds of eyewitnesses. I read historical accounts and I have compiled a narrative. And so he's got eyewitness accounts that he's put together into a history. That's what he's done to create Luke's gospel. So if you go to Luke 5, there is an event there. And here's why I'm telling you that that background. Somebody watched what happened and somebody told Luke And somebody believed that this detail that I'm about to say to you was significant enough to record in that gospel. In Luke 5, there's what I call a mega view of of this whole theme of Jesus' healing. There's a microcosm of his prayer life, and then there's a moment where we see him involved in prayer for healing. So 5.15 says that Jesus had remarkable success with uh, prayer for healing all over. Crowds of thousands were coming, and wasn't this amazing? In 5.16... It doesn't say that he just did double down and did more of it. It said that he went off by himself to pray because his prayer life personally was the feeder that led him to be able to pray like he did in 515 for large crowds. So he'd pray more. Now in 517, he was in this one spot. There was a paralyzed man there. And there were there was a crowd of people all around him from all across the Middle East. And it does say they traveled from other nations. Now, for us, you want to drive an hour, you get in the car, you go an hour, you don't think much of it. But in that culture, if you had to go an hour, you would have to get an animal. You'd have to get feed for the animal. You'd have to get water for the animal. You would have to travel in a company. You'd have to bring your sick person with you. They would have to plan for days to be able to make a trip of a day with beasts of burden and with friends to make sure they were safe. And there was a crowd of thousands of them surrounding Jesus which tells you about the high level of commitment in their ability to see what was going on with this man. If you look at the text in 517, it talks about Pharisees and teachers of the law and all the people who were commoners and a bunch of people who were sick. They were all there. And there's a phrase that shows up at the end of 517 that I have circled in every Bible I've owned because it speaks to what I just described to you when I was praying with that man with phlebitis. It says this, And the power of the Lord was present for him, that's Jesus, to perform healing. Whenever I read that text, I ask people in the audience, wherever I am, if I'm a church or a small group or whatever, I ask them to say the sentence out loud with me. And we repeat it together after I put it on a PowerPoint screen or somehow get them to look in the Bible if they have the same translation. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. If I'm CMA, I have to believe that Jesus is God the Son. 
I have to believe that he's the son of God. I have to hold to a Trinitarian view of theology. I have to believe that Jesus was, in fact, divine in birth and that he got filled with the spirit uh, and it was the spirit of heaven coming into him when he was in his 30s, et cetera, et cetera. But this text describes a picture of Jesus zoning in to pray for the paralyzed man. And somebody in the crowd was aware of that manifest presence growing and landing on Jesus, enabling him to be able to accomplish the miraculous sign. And he told Luke, it says that that anointing became manifest, landed on him, and then he healed the paralyzed man. Most Christians, out of reverence for the Lord, will say something like, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. And the scripture says, he's God, he emptied himself to reclaim what our first parents had abandoned. As the second and last Adam got infilled by spirit to accomplish miraculous signs and wonders. His divinity is without question the thing that made sinless perfection for him possible. But his acts of power did not arise from his divinity they arose from his yielded submission to the movement of the Spirit. That's an incredible kind of insight. That is exactly what happened to me when I was praying for that guy in the hospital. And I'm going to give you another scripture where it happens in the case of another person. In Acts 10, you have Simon Peter giving a sermon to the household of Cornelius. This is the first ever sermon given to a Gentile audience. And the thing that he does is he describes how power was on Jesus of Nazareth arising from God. The very thing that I just said to you. So this is Acts chapter 10, and I'm picking it up at verse 37. This is Simon Peter, not Jesus, and not Luke himself talking to an eyewitness. This is Simon Peter describing this. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, and here's the language that is profound. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. It does not say he had power bestowed on him by virtue of his divinity and his miraculous conception. It says that at the baptism of John, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. The key to the healing ministry of Jesus was his prayer life, his yielded submission to the movement of the Spirit, and his sinless perfection in combination. I do want to jump into the book, Healing Prayer, God's Idea for Restoring Body, Mind, and Spirit. We've touched on a fair bit of what's in the book. What else might people find if they pick up a copy of this book what are you going to take them through? What are the people going to encounter? They'll get some good theology about prayer for healing. There will also be background narratives around how to get a prayer life. Because if you don't have a prayer life, you can't have a prayer for healing life. That's very, very clear. It's intended to be a training manual. And so there are two authors, myself and Dr. Maxie Dunham. Maxie was the head of Asbury Theological Seminary, and he was the chief editor for The Upper Room. He's written more than 50 books. And his books, for the most part, are primers and helpers to equip people to learn how to, to engage in various practices. And so the two of us put our hearts and minds together to do that very thing. We tease out the principles about how a person can enter into prayer for healing. 
And we don't shortchange the fact that sometimes there's partial healing and sometimes there's holy mystery. And for whatever reason in God's providence, the Lord himself does not heal. David, I'm sure that there are many people who are wanting to get a hold of this book to understand a little bit more of what you're talking about. Where is the easiest place for people to find you and to find your books? Amazon is the easiest one because it, that covers the planet and it is published on Amazon. There's an audio book. I read and Maxie reads the book and you could hear her voices walking you through that while you're driving in your car. It's going to be turned into a course. It's going to be offered by a group of people called JourneyWise. And the goal here is that churches who want to train their churches and learn to do prayer for healing would be in touch with JourneyWise. They would get 15 videos of 10 minutes duration each for a Bible study around each of the 15 chapters of the book. And my website is spiritequip.com. And there's all kinds of links to all of my books, and in particular that one, because it's the most recent. David, I will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can find you easily. But I just want to say thank you for putting the effort into writing this book, along with Maxi, And thank you so much for your time on Bleeding Daylight today. Well, listen, it's been a joy to be with you. So thank you for inviting me. I'm thankful for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.